Well, this morning we're going to be talking more about what it looks like to try to change the world through our own two hands. We're going to get into that. I'll ask you to put it on the back burner, though, for a few moments, because before we get into that, we're going to talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing with your own two hands as soon as we leave this place, which is lunch. So I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school, uh, we had the choice of bringing a lunch to school or buying uh, what was called a hot lunch. Now, my guess is that school lunches have come a long way, but when I was in school, the school lunch you could buy, or the hot lunch as we would call it, not so good. Uh, every once in a while, there would be something that they, they called pizza, which was kind of edible, uh, or maybe something with tater tots. I remember the tater tots being a big hit. Uh, to this day, when I'm at a restaurant that serves tater tots, I have elementary school lunch flashbacks. But, but generally, the food they served was not good. So most of the kids at my school brought their food from home. Now, by the time I hit middle school, when you brought food from home, the only cool way to bring food was in a brown paper bag. Uh, but when I was in elementary school, the most exciting part of bringing your lunch was a metal lunchbox. They stopped making metal lunchboxes in 1985. I'll tell you why in a second, but just out of curiosity, how many of you remember metal lunchboxes? Oh, wow, a good portion of you. Okay, metal lunchboxes, usually with some kind of character licensing on the outside. Uh, this is what school lunch was all about. And, and you would get your parents to buy you a new lunchbox every single year. I remember having a Star Wars lunchbox, uh, a Superman lunchbox. Uh, I'm pretty sure I had a Scooby-Doo lunchbox although uh, mine had the mystery machine on it. These are all collector's items now, by the way. Um, in fact, the very first lunchbox ever created, metal lunchbox, was a Mickey Mouse lunchbox in 1935. In, in fact, um, I'm gonna tell you how much this sells for now, but before I do, just tell the person you came with or sitting next to you what you think this would sell for at auction right now. Okay, you ready? $2,000, $2,000, check this one out. Here is a Beatles lunchbox that sells for around $2,000 as well, $2,000 for that. Um, back to Superman, the most valuable lunchbox right now is this Superman lunchbox from 1954. If you can find one in mint condition, $13,000. Now. They do not make these metal lunchboxes anymore. Well, they, they make lunchboxes still. They make way better thermo, uh, uh, insulated thermal, actually keep your food warm or cold lunch things, right? I don't even know what you call these. But in 1985, they stopped making metal lunchboxes. And do you know why? Because too many kids were getting hurt hitting each other with their metal lunchboxes. <laughs> Of course, you give a kid a hollow metal lunchbox, they're going to find a way to turn it into a weapon. In fact, uh, I am pretty sure I remember using my metal lunchbox as a weapon all the time. Uh, they would be so dented up by the end of the school year, that's part of how you got your parents to buy you a new one. The handle would break off in a sword fight where your swords were metal lunchboxes. Uh, the last lunchbox ever made was in 1985. It was this Rambo lunchbox. Sylvester Stallone holding an AK-47. <laughs> My, how times have changed. I would say in this case for the better. By the way, that only sells for $380 on the collector's market. Well, sometimes the reason that we would get into a lunchbox fight was over a dispute, and there was one dispute that was a daily dispute at my school, happened every single day, and it was over trades. 
we would always want to swap some of what we got for something really good that somebody else got. And, and while metal lunchboxes are no longer in vogue, trades at lunch still happen every single day. I asked my current middle school student, go back a few years, go back before you made your own lunch and mom was still helping you with that, making lunch for you, what are the things that you would get and you would trade? And she said, all right, well, if I got a box of raisins, I would hate it. I would always try and trade it for some really good crackers like Cheez-Its. And if my friends got a Go-Gurt, they would trade it for Halloween candy. Okay, Go-Gurt's not bad, but, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, oh my gosh. And she said, if someone got celery, they might try to swap it for a bag of Doritos but nobody wants to swap anything for celery. If you got celery, you're stuck with it. <laughs> and as I was discussing this with my 13-year-old, it all came rushing back to me. My mom would make me a liverwurst sandwich. Now, I, I don't even know if that's still a thing. I'm not even sure they still sell liverwurst spread. I, I haven't seen it since the 70s at the supermarket, but she would spread liverwurst on two pieces of white bread, push them together, throw an apple in the box, and call it lunch. And, uh, and I remember trying to trade anybody for a liverwurst sandwich, and no one would trade with me. Uh, hey, I see you've got a peanut butter and jelly. How about we trade, and I'll give you my liverwurst? Who's going to say yes to that? And, uh, and sometimes I would get lucky, and my mom would pack me bologna, if you want to call that lucky. And maybe I'd get salami, because I'm Italian, but lots of times liverwurst, which just the name itself makes it hard to trade. It, it's, it's liver from some animal, I don't know which, and it's the worst. But I would try. I would try. What are you willing to give me for this? And the answer was nothing, absolutely nothing. And I would resign myself to the fact that I was stuck. This was it. There were no options. This is just the way it's going to be. That's just the way it is. I am stuck. And, and we have spent far too much time today on lunchboxes and liverwurst because I wonder, I wonder if maybe right now some of you are feeling stuck with something. Like you have opened up your lunchbox and you're looking at what you've got and you're not wild about it. And you would like to trade. God, what would you give me in place of what I have sitting in front of me right now in my life? My school life? My career life, my, my life with my friends, my life in my marriage, my, my dating, the person I'm dating. Something in your life looks like a liverwurst sandwich. And you want to trade it for something better, but you're thinking, God won't even trade for this. And you have resigned yourself to the fact, or maybe you're beginning to resign yourself to this idea that this is just the way it is. This is just the way it's going to be. I'm stuck with what I'm stuck with. Like, there are no other options. Do you ever find yourself resigned to life just being the way it's going to be, and there's no way it's going to change? I, I think we all do that with some things that we find personally when we open up our lunch. Can I say that I know we all do it when we look at our collective lunchbox, the one that we all share together? Homelessness, poverty, racism, other kinds of injustice, taxes, stupid laws, politics. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it's been. I can barely fix what's in my lunchbox, let alone what's in our lunchbox. And the things that have been going wrong in our society have been going wrong for hundreds, thousands of years. And there's nothing we can do about it. That is just the way it is. 
I'll say, if you don't feel like you have that attitude about anything in your personal life, you probably have it about some things in our society, right? And, and what I want to tell you today is that's just the way it is, is not the way it is. Actually, God wants you to know today that might be the way it is, but it's not the way it has to be. Today, I want to show you the story of some people in the Bible who felt like they're stuck and that they had no options and, and more than anything, like there was nothing they could do with what life handed them, what they found in their metaphorical lunchbox. Let me show you the story. It's in Matthew 14. And here's how it begins. Jesus is just arriving at a marina, having been out on a boat. He's trying to get some alone time on the boat. He pulls up, verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approaches, approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, the Bible doesn't exactly say where this is happening, but most scholars think that this might have happened on the plain of Bethsaida, which is this flat piece of land kind of out on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And the reason that that matters is there were only two cities that were close to that plain. One would have been Bethsaida itself. The other one would have been Capernaum. So when the disciples say to Jesus, we're in a remote place, we want to send people to the villages to buy food, the options are pretty limited. As far as villages go, Bethsaida would have been the closest, but there's a problem with Bethsaida. It's not Jewish. It's a Hellenistic village, meaning it's Greek. It doesn't practice Jewish customs and laws, which means that if you were a Jewish person who wanted to go buy bread, you would not have much luck finding the bread you need in Bethsaida. In fact, Bethsaida is probably off limits for an observant Jew. So what that leaves is Capernaum, which is four miles away, a four-mile walk is the nearest option for buying bread. Now, verse 14 and 15, do not tell us how many people are in the crowd, but we're gonna read in just a few seconds that it's 5,000 men, not including women and children, which means it's probably somewhere around 10,000 people. So when the, when the disciples say, hey, let's send the crowds away to the villages so they can go buy food, can you imagine 10,000 people all descending on one village at the same time? Have any of you seen the Woodstock documentary <laughs> where you've got 400,000 people in rural New York State that are all going through a town of 2,000 people? Okay, this isn't that, but I imagine it's pretty close. The population of Capernaum was about 7,500 people at the time of Jesus. So 10,000 people all come looking in your 7,500-person town for food. There would not be enough food baked that day to feed 10,000 people or more. So the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, send the people to the villages to go buy their own food. And Jesus, very likely realizing that's not going to work, he says back to them, verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You, my 12 disciples, find a way to feed 10,000 people yourselves. Do you ever feel like your boss gives you something impossible to do? Can, can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? Jesus, are you crazy? We can't feed 10,000 people. That is not how this works. And frankly, I'm offended that you even ask us to try to solve this. 
Talk about unrealistic expectations, Jesus. Have you not read the One Minute Manager or any other leadership books? What is your deal? Actually, what they say to Jesus is this, verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Only. Only. We have only. And right here, before we read any further, we see the myth of more. If we only had more, we could solve this problem, but we only have less. Oh, Jesus, the one who we once saw turn water into wine? Jesus, the one who, like just five minutes ago, we were watching you heal people who've been sick or disabled for years. Jesus, we only have a little bit, and there are 10,000 people, and as much as we know that you do miraculous things, and as much as we know that it was your idea for us to find them food, we're stuck. That's just the way it is. This is a too, too big of a problem to be fixed. This will never change. We have a problem that is not fixable. And so what we recommend, Jesus, is that we stop all of the good that you're doing here, all the healing, all the teaching, everything that you came here to do, and we just send everyone away. Because this is just the way it is. This is just the way it has to be. That is our only option. Because we have been given a lunchbox, and all that's in it, only five loaves of bread and two fish. I asked you earlier, if you're ever a person who says, that's just the way it is when you look at things in your own personal life, or maybe when you look at things in our society, I hope as you've been listening, you're thinking about that, but, but can I give you some help? How you might know that you have this attitude when it comes to your life or the problems of the world, how do you know? When the word only becomes a prominent part of your vocabulary. I only have so much time. I only have so much money. I only have so much energy towards something. Part of that's why, part of why it's just the way it is, is because I only. And when you say that, what you're saying is, God, I have a problem, or collectively, we have a problem, and God, I don't think that you have given me the resources to solve it. And so this will just be the way that it is. And if, if you wanted it different, God, you would have given me a different lunchbox. But since the one you gave me has this liverwurst sandwich in it, I'm stuck. Since the one that you gave our world is full of celery, gogurt, and raisins, I'm not going to even bother dreaming about Cheez-Its and Halloween candy. I'm going to sit here and sulk with my Scooby-Doo lunchbox, and on my way back to class, maybe I'll get into a sword fight with it. Scooby-Doo versus Rambo. The disciples say, we only have five loaves, two fish. And, and what you probably don't ever want to say to God is, you only gave me this. Because in verse 18, Jesus said, bring them here to me. Okay, when you say to your boss, it can't be done, and your boss says, move, let me try, bring them here to me, that's when you know you made a mistake, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus tells thousands of people to all sit down in the grass, and then he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he gives thanks. Now, it doesn't say what he says in this prayer, but I imagine it did not sound like the disciples. God, we only have this little bit of food. We have lots of people. I imagine it sounded like this. God, thank you so much for all of this food that you would provide for all of us here today. 
God, you have been so faithful to us for many generations, and we trust you're going to be faithful again today. Thank you. Amen. The disciples looked, and they saw what they had as only. Jesus looked at the exact same thing, and he saw it as abundant, more than enough, no problem. Okay, real quick, when you look at your life, or when you look at our world, which eyes do you look through? The disciples' eyes of only? Or Jesus' eyes, this will be enough. This will do. We can make this work. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus took the bread, and he broke it into pieces, and he put it in baskets. I don't know where they got baskets, but I imagine people must have been carrying baskets for their stuff. Maybe the basket was like the ancient version of a fanny pack. I'm still trying to figure out what the point is of the baskets. Apparently, there's baskets everywhere. Jesus puts the food in the baskets, and he asks the disciples to start passing the baskets out, and they do. And verse 20 says that everyone ate and was satisfied. Would you say that word with me? Satisfied. Satisfied. 10,000 people ate and were satisfied. And then verse 20 says, by the time their baskets made their way back up to the front, there were 12 baskets of food left over. Now, I don't know how big a basket was, but, but I would suggest that if a basket is worth being a basket, it's got to hold something substantial, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's got to hold at least one loaf of bread, doesn't it? And, and surely, one basket has got to be able to hold one leftover, broken apart so that we can all eat it, fish. And, and if the story started with two fish and five loaves, I will tell you, I am no math magician, but five loaves, two fish equals seven things. If nobody ate anything, I would imagine at most, you would have seven baskets. So how does everyone eat and they're full, and they're satisfied, and they have 12 baskets of food when it's over. And the answer is, it's a miracle. Five loaves, two fish, feed 10,000 people, and there's more left over when they're done. And the moral of the story is, that is not just the way it is. It's not over till God says it's over. Your situation, your marriage, your work, your finances, your, your kids, your friends, they're not just the way it is. And our world situation is not just the way it is until God says that's the way that it is. And, and some of us have resigned ourselves to what is in our lunchbox. And we think that no one's going to make a trade for this. And what you have got to know is it may be the way it is in your life, but that doesn't mean it's the way it has to be. I have a person in my small group who is in the middle of a career change. Uh, he's been a teacher, a good one, for 20 years. But he's been feeling done with it lately. Uh, he's been taking arduous steps toward a new career. Not, not easy. Uh, if you're close to my age and you've been in the same career you've been in since you finished school, that can be intimidating. But he's facing that down because he realizes my life may be what it is right now, but that's not the way it has to be. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago after one of our services who asked me to pray for them, and, uh, and the reason is they're trying to quit smoking. Um, they've been smoking for years and years, but they need a surgery. They can't have it safely until they quit. And so I prayed with them, and, and they're doing well, and they're quitting, but what they realize, this may be what my life has been or, or is right now. It is not the way it has to be. 
both of those people refuse to say that's just the way it is. And, and I would ask you, in what area of your life do you say, I have only been given this thing from God or, or these limited tools or this situation and I'm going to just live with it the way that it is. And God says, that is not the way it has to be. Now, we all have that thing personally, but let's talk collectively for a second. Um, I was talking with someone this week who was sharing with a friend some of the work they're, they're doing to, to be an advocate for, for justice in our world. You know, the Bible tells us in Micah 6.8, what's required of us, required of all of us, is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. So this person I spoke with was, was doing some things, been, been actively involved in solutions for those who are unhoused and, and, and racial justice and, and lots of other things. Anyway, they were talking to a friend, and the friend said, isn't that just the way it is? Won't we always have the poor among us? Je Jesus did say something like that, but it's been taken way out of context. Won't we always have racism? And, and, and the moral of the story we just read is about more than God just doing something to change your personal the way it is. I mean, Jesus fed 10,000 people that day. He looked at his disciples who had given up on solving the collective problem. He said, we will not leave society, this little 10,000-person society, the way it is. This is not the way it has to be. He said, watch this. And, and, and just as I wonder if some of you have given up on some personal way it is ever-changing, maybe you have given up on our society ever-changing. Or you believe it will change. It's just going to change for the worse. I talk to a lot of people who feel like things only get worse and worse. I sometimes fall into the trap of thinking it's only going to get worse. But then I am reminded by God through stories like the one we're reading, that is not the way it has to be. Now, I'm not here to just give you a pep talk today. Cheer up, it's going to get better. You know, God changes things. Let's talk about how he does that. How he does it for you how he does it for all of us with these big collective things. And I'm going to tell you how he does it by going back to the story. There are two theories on what happened that day with the bread and the fish. Both of these theories involve a miracle. The first is that God provided supernaturally. Jesus, without complaining that he only had a little, thanked God for the food, broke it into pieces for everybody to eat, and God came through and multiplied it. And the miracle was a supernatural miracle. Wait, aren't all miracles supernatural? Yeah, I guess so, but you're going to see in the second theory that, that, uh, that, that can be something that's kind of natural, it's just kind of impossible. God intervened in a supernatural way. Something that doesn't just happen, happened in Crosswinds. I believe, I believe God does these kinds of things all the time, but sometimes we don't see it. Um, a few months back, uh, <laughs> anticipating that at some point I was going to get COVID, I started recording movies on TV that I could watch when I would eventually be stuck at home for two weeks feeling sick. And I started recording a bunch of old movies off of the Turner Classic Movies channel. Uh, I thought, I'm going to watch movies from the 1950s and earlier when I get COVID, because that'll be soothing for me. Problem is, when I did get COVID, Andrea got it at the same time, and she didn't want to watch any of those movies. 
So uh, I was out of luck. And uh, one movie, though, that I recorded and I got to watch was The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. It came out in 1952. Uh, it is about these two people who are stuck on um, a Disneyland Jungle Cruise-style boat <laughs> as they cruise through the jungle, and all sorts of things happen. Um, she's a missionary. Bogart is a hard-drinking gin runner. And, and they encounter all sorts of things as they're going down this river. Insects attack. Uh, Nazis try to shoot them. They fight rapids on this river and they're trying to take the boat down river to this large lake where they're going to do their part in the war and blow up a german destroyer anyway they survive all of these things until one day the river dissipates and the river splits into a hundred little streams and the african queen that's the name of their boat it bogs down in a marsh and they do everything they can to try to move the boat along they try to use poles uh, Bogart gets out of the boat, and he tries to pull it by a rope. He ends up with leeches all over him. It is all bad. Okay, this is what is in their lunchbox. Eventually, the boat is stuck on a mud flat, and Bogart has a fever, and they are done. And Bogart says to Hepburn, he says this, and I'm not going to try to impersonate him. He just says, <laughs> Rosie, you want to know the truth, don't you? Even if we had all our strength, we would never get off this mud. We're finished. And she says, I know. And they resign themselves to death. That's just the way it is. And he falls asleep to die. And she prays a prayer of resignation. She prays a prayer. God, we have come to the end of our journey. In a little while, we'll stand before you. Open the doors of heaven for Charlie and me. But the camera draws back slowly to reveal what the couple can't see because of the reeds that are blocking their view. The African queen, the boat, is less than 100 yards from the shining lake. They're only 100 yards away from their destination, and they don't know it. And then something supernatural happens. The camera shows that up the river, a torrential rainstorm has started. And it's sending animals scurrying for cover. And we see the small rapids turn into big rapids. And down on that mudflat, a small channel begins to run through the reeds. And the channel swells, and it lifts the boat off the mudflat, and it carries it to the lake. And the two wake up to the gentle rocking of the boat and a refreshing breeze. And you never know how close your miracle might be. This past week, I was here at my small group, and uh, we were sitting right over there because our small group meets in here because there's no other place to meet. And we were going around just sharing some of, of what we've seen God do in our lives. And, and one of the people in our group said, and I asked her permission to share this, she told the story of how they fought to become parents of their daughter. Um, their daughter was their niece. And she had some biological parents who were not in uh, real great places. One was in prison, uh, and the other one was using and just in and out of some places where she couldn't be a mom. And so their little two-year-old niece on the other side of the country from here uh, had been moving around from foster home to foster home with strangers. And, and, and she felt a stirring in her, this woman in my group, um, she felt this stirring, I'm supposed to go and we're supposed to take her in. Anyway, to shorten the story, um, it seems like whenever anyone makes a decision like that, Parents who did not care about the child before, biological parents, suddenly enter the picture and care about the child, right? Uh, even if they're not in a place to be parenting anyone, they could still put up a fight and they can still go to court. And so they did. 
And it was your usual custody hearing. Who, who's going to parent this child? And it involves social workers giving their opinions and everybody else. And they thought that this would be a slam dunk. The child would leave the foster system and go be with this couple from my small group. But you never know what the court-appointed lawyer for her biological mom would say, right? What surprises might come up as this person fights against you and against what is clearly the best thing for this kid? Well, after everyone else had spoken, just as this lawyer who was going to make the, the case for why this child should stay in this terrible space she'd been in, just as the lawyer got up to talk, it started pouring rain. Like pouring rain. Like the rain was so loud, no one could hear what the lawyer was saying in the courtroom. The rain just covered up every single word. It was just like white noise covered everything. And get this, the judge stopped the hearing. And so the lawyer just started talking and talking and nobody was able to listen. And the lawyer finished her speech, went and sat down, and the rain stopped. <laughs> and that child has become their daughter and has lived with them now almost 10 years. And I've met her a few times. She is so bright and so well-adjusted. And sometimes God does something supernatural to change the way it is to the way that it should be. Some of you might say, I've never seen a miracle. Well, you don't need a miracle until you're stuck on a mud flat. Reaching the end of your resources. Only having five loaves and two fish is often the beginning <laughs> of God's supernatural work. And one way that God might change your just the way it is and, and our society's just the way it is is by doing something supernatural. And what I would say to you today, you never know how close you might be to God's supernatural changing the way it is. Let me tell you the other way that God changes the way it is. And this is where the, the two hands come in. And, and this comes out of another theory, another kind of miracle that happened that day with the five loaves and the two fish. When Matthew tells this story in the Bible, let me put it back up. Do you notice in this, it doesn't actually say anywhere that Jesus multiplied the loaves. All it says is he gave thanks, broke it, he started passing it around. And one theory is that 10,000 people who perhaps all had brought some food for the day, a little bit here, a little bit there in their own little baskets, who all had been safeguarding their food for the day, keeping their lunch boxes closed and hidden and to themselves, when they saw this little boy with two fish and five loaves give it to Jesus, and, and when they saw Jesus not panic over only having this little amount, but thanking God for all that they had, one theory is that as the baskets were passed, people stopped hiding what they brought and they put food in. And, and that doesn't make it any less of a miracle. One theory, God supernaturally multiplied what they had. The other is God did the miracle of opening people's hearts. And they shared what they had, and they said, five loaves and two fish might be the way it is, but 10,000 of us say that's not the way it has to be. Let, let me ask, which one do you think would have been the tougher miracle for God? Getting thousands of people to do something incredibly unselfish or growing bread. Look, this is another way 
God miraculously takes our lunchbox from what it is to what it could be. And I wonder if some of you, as you look around what's wrong with the world, and, and, and you won't say that's just the way it is, it won't ever change, racism, poverty, hunger, injustice. I wonder if God isn't stirring something in you where he says, I want you to be part of my miracle of changing the way it is to what it could be, what it's going to be. I want your two hands. Um, I, I love our friends at Foster the City. It used to be Foster the Bay. They got so big, they've expanded outside the Bay Area. They had to rename themselves. But their vision, foster kids getting with, with families who care, who, who need fostering from people who love God and they want to love them. And they didn't say, ah, that's just the way it is. They said, that is the way it is, but that's not the way God wants it to be. So I will open my lunchbox. What can I do? And what they do, they go around and they get people from churches to become foster families. And then those churches support those families. Um, I love our friends at the Flourish Collective. They looked and saw the racial injustice that exists in our world and the lack of understanding that leads people to have hard hearts about being allies. And so they started a nonprofit to help people learn and give and live out justice. And they looked at the way it is, and they said, that's not the way God wants it to be. We can do our part. I think of our friends at Goodness Village. There's a staff of 15 people over there who said, you know, California has the largest homeless population in the nation, and it seems to be growing. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but there are 15 people who work there and, and so many of you who volunteer there that say that may be the way it is. So many people living on the streets of California and in their cars and in shelters, but that isn't the way it has to be for these 28 people. I can't do everything for everyone, but I can do something for someone, 28 someones. Today's what it is for 28 people is way better than what it was because you as a church said, that's not the way it has to be. Can I tell you, even just that we exist as a church is evidence of this God opens people's hearts miracle. Crosswinds does not exist without God providing through all of us. You know that Crosswinds is not a church that just has some large donors that cover the whole budget for everyone. Not at all. It is all of you saying, I will give a tithe. I'll give a portion of what I have so that we, as God's people, collectively can make sure that people's lives are not just what they are, but that they can come to a knowledge and acceptance of God's saving grace and his death on the cross for their sin. I, I will say, anytime somebody opens their heart and gives to the church, I think that's a miracle. I, I, I'll tell you, I give here, um, Andrea and I, we tithe. 10% of our income, because I believe the way we change the world from what it is, is by helping people repent, which means make a change, repent of what they've turned the world into, and let Jesus change their hearts so that we can make the world a better place and their lives a better life. And, and I wonder what miracle God is trying to do in you today to open your heart, to take what is, what, whatever you're saying that about today, that is what it is, and make it what it should be. All right, we are out of time. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us before we go. God, may, may we strike only from our vocabulary. May we be a people of abundance. 
who do not think that we need more, who do not fall for the myth that you have not given us enough, enough for ourselves to meet our needs, enough to change the world into what you want it to be. God, I would ask today that you would open our hearts and open our eyes, open our eyes to see your supernatural working in our midst. God, open our hearts to make us want to go make that difference with two hands. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.